information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. America, the percussive African banjo met with Scotch-Irish fiddle tunes in the mountain south to create a unique form of music we now call Old Time. Once widespread, and among the earliest recorded music, Old Time was eventually isolated to deep mountain hollows and far-flung communities until it was rediscovered and reinvigorated during the folk revival of the 1960s. You can hear music from each of these periods, as well as the energetic string bands of today, on High on a Mountain, Maine's only program dedicated entirely to Old Time Appalachian music. So whether you're looking for that high and lonesome sound or want to get down in the low ground, we've got you covered. That's High on a Mountain, every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on your community radio station, WERU. All right, Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from George Stevens Academy, welcoming students to discover their world. More information at georgestevensacademy.org. This is WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Hey, it's 10 o'clock and it's time for Let's Talk Animals. Good morning, this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. We are live uh, this month, so I welcome people to call in for questions on the topic. Uh, the phone number is 469-0500 to call in. I'll remind you later on in the show if you have uh, questions about our topic. I always plug my uh, Sunday morning uh, pet sounds at 7.30 in the morning. I'm still doing them. Uh, some interesting topics coming up, so please listen in 7.30 in the morning on Sundays. Uh, today we have a discussion about a, about a book written by Jessica Pierce called Unleashing Your Dog, A Field Guide to Giving Your Canine Compa- Companion the Best Life Possible. So I'd like to welcome Jessica to the show. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for uh, sitting down calling from Colorado. Is that where you are right now? Thank goodness you're not in. Thank God. Thank goodness you're not in Hawaii. Uh, then the time would have been a little bit uh, off. Yeah, that would have been painful. <laughs> uh, make sure you're on the phone. So make sure you talk uh, loudly into the phone so all our, all our listeners can hear you. Okay, will do. So the uh, so your book's unleashing your dog, and um, it's co-written by Mark Beckoff. You and Mark Beckoff did that. Uh, as I ask all my um, my guests, is how do you, how you got here from there? How'd you get to write this book? Well, so my um, my field of um, professional work is bioethics, which um, for those listeners who aren't familiar with um, what a bioethicist does, um, it's a field. I, I basically come from a background of philosophy, moral philosophy, and um, work particularly at the intersection of uh, ethics and science, um, and particularly biology and science. Most people who do bioethics work um, more obviously in the realm of medical ethics, um, and that was 
what I did in the earlier part of my career, but I, um, I've always loved animals and always been interested in the ethics of human-animal relationships. And, you know, I think what really the, kind, the roots of this Unleashing book um, were uh, work that I started to do on the evolution of moral behavior. Um, and originally I was trying to sort of understand the evolution of moral behavior in human beings. But part of where that exploration takes you is into the evolution of moral behaviors in, in other animals, um, you know, most notably in primates, but also in canids, um, wolves, dogs, um, and a whole range of other mammals. And so it took me squarely into the study of animal cognition, um, animal emotions, sentience, and um, that's when I started collaborating with my co-author, Mark Beckhoff. We wrote a book called Wild Justice, which is about moral behavior in non-human animals. And, you know, from there, it's really, um, I, I've been writing about animals really exclusively since then. And, um, you know, this, this book is an example of, of me having my, my personal life and personal experience shape my professional thinking. Um, I've lived with a lot of animals over the years, um, particularly when I was um, the mother of a young child who mm -hmm. <laughs> she wanted to have pretty much every kind of animal you can imagine as a pet and you know really um, generated some strong feelings in me about the ethics of keeping animals as pets and particularly animals you know like snakes and geckos and um, animals that that have to be kept in tanks or cages where it, it really seems unethical in, in many ways to keep them captive. Um, but dogs, I think, are a unique case because they have, in an evolutionary sense, they have chosen to be our partners. And um, nevertheless, there are a lot of ethical dilemmas and conundrums that come up for somebody who's trying to live um, a good, you know, morally... Um, shared existence with a canine companion. So Unleashing was really an exploration of how to how to be responsible and, um, and caring dog owners, you know, and how to help our dogs adapt to human environments that are often challenging for them in a number of ways. You're, and, and the way you approach it was, it's a good, it's a great little book, very unique, and <clears throat> you use the dog's ethology or behavior, natural behavior to have you try to get the the reader to understand that and by understanding that you seem to be able to then give us lessons as to how we can help our dogs uh, live better with us i want to remind my listeners that unleashing your dog is not a training book at all it's a book of better understanding your what your dog needs uh, everyday needs um, i think i got that correct right you did okay yeah and just exactly as you have suggested that by understanding who our dogs are as dogs understanding their the biology of the canine particularly the canine sensory world how we can um, do better for them because 
it's easy to see them as furry little humans, but they're not. They're they're a different species with their own way of seeing the world. Um, but yet they so, want to be part of our world. Which exactly. Is, which is uh, very unique. So you went into, in the beginning of the book, uh, the term, well, the, the conundrum of being captive versus being free, captive and freedom. Yes. And uh, people have a, a certain concept what captive means. They think of prisoners. But could you tell our listeners what you mean by our dogs being captive and what freedom means and what kind of things that freedom yeah. means to the dog? Yeah, it's funny when when... I say to somebody, you know, your your dog is actually a captive animal. They, it's often kind of surprising and even shocking um, because people people don't generally think of companion dogs in that way because they don't live for the most part behind bars or in a cage. Um, and you know, we think of captive animals as animals living in a zoo, for example. And our dogs have a lot of freedom, it seems, within, within human environments, but they are captive in the, in, in the sense that we, as pet owners, control the most important aspects of their lives. For example, we generally control even when they can go to the bathroom, what they're going to eat, when they're going to eat, whether they have access to water. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, shelter, who they get to socialize with, uh, you know, and on what terms, um, and, you know, how often they get to go outside and where they get to go. So in that sense, they, they are captive animals, and captivity is hard. It's, it's a deprivation, and so we can counteract that by trying to give them as much freedom as possible to be dogs and um, do things that dogs enjoy and um, and make choices. So the, the, the captivity is a, a type of existence, <clears throat> not, as you point out in your book, not necessarily a quality at this point. So it's, the, it's the way they live, and you're trying to um, now talk about the freedom. You're trying to, to, trying to achieve a balance between these two because the captivity is not going to go away. Exactly. But it's kind of it's a spectrum. So I guess the goal that we're aiming toward in the book is a a least captive dog and a dog with as much freedom as possible. Um, And, you know, it's it's all relative, and we can't just open our doors and say, go have a good time, at least, you know, in many communities. For dogs, that would be unsafe. So some constraints um, are necessary. And, you know, we have, of course, laws in, in most places about what dogs are allowed to do and where they're allowed to be. So, you know, it's within reasonable constraints of, of good sense and safety, just like parenting a human child. You know, you want to – it's a, been – somebody referred to our approach in this book as free-range pet parenting, and I think that's a really good way to good one, describe yeah. what we're trying to do. Yep. Being in a, on a farm, but yet free ranging. That's a, yes. that's a good. Now, you, you did mention the book Ten Freedoms of Dogs, um, and a lot of them cons- are freedom from hunger and thirst, and freedom from pain and discomfort and fear and distress. But also, the, the last four or five 
You mentioned freedom to be themselves, to express, uh-huh. express normal behavior, exercise choice and control, frolic and have fun, and uh, have privacy. And these are all freedoms that you address specifically in this book. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit, just on general freedom? Uh, uh, sh- sure. So um, some of your listeners may be familiar with the, the five freedoms, which were are still um, a cornerstone of the animal welfare movement. And the idea was, and these were developed in relation to animals in an agricultural setting where the conditions of, of life were really quite challenging. Um, so the freedoms were uh, kind of a basis for, you know, what, what are our fundamental responsibilities to, to good animal welfare care within the conditions of captivity. And those include, you know, the freedom to um, turn around in one all um, freedom to um, freedom from hunger so provision of food provision of water freedom from you know exposure to the elements and from pain and disease but and these are great um, but they're not enough because we also need to really work to provide positive experiences and opportunities for for our dogs so take the freedom to express normal behaviors. You know, a lot of dogs um, aren't, you know, they want to do doggy things like um, sniff, run, um, you know, play with other dogs and, you know, explore their environment. And they don't often, they're not given the freedom to do those things. Um, normal dog-related activities. So um, just emphasizing the need to, to do, to go above and beyond to give our dogs what they need. So from, from this concept of freedom, you um, talk about freedom inhibitors mm-hmm. versus freedom enhancers, which is really a backbone of a lot of what you write in the book, uh, trying to... Um, encourage the enhancers and discourage the inhibitors. Um, can you tell me, uh, tell us exactly how you, how you came to that and um, how does, give, give us some examples and we'll probably talk more about it yeah. specifics later, but it's just that concept of the in- inhibitor versus enhancer and what you're trying to achieve to be a happy So, dog. yes. So, again, this also comes out of the animal welfare literature, um, uh, a freedom inhibitor is something that uh, inhibits an animal, a dog's um, ability to sort of live and um, express, feel normal emotions. Of, um, an example of a freedom inhibitor, um, and this may sound counterintuitive, but I would say, you know, Fourth of July fireworks for a lot of dogs are a freedom inhibitor because. Um, they're a strongly aversive stimuli and something that, you know, it's, it's a, a nice thing for our dog if we can protect them from aversive stimuli of that sort that, that create um, a lot of stress and anxiety. Another freedom inhibitor is the leash. You know, leashes are necessary in some 
um, situations, in a lot of situations, um, but they also inhibit a dog's freedom to move at their own pace, to choose the direction of travel, to, you know, linger over things that they may want to linger over, and, and basically to, to have control or choice over, over the movement, their physical movement in the environment. So a freedom enhancer um, is something, it's just what it sounds like, that sort of improves our dog's freedom to, to be themselves and make choices. So having off-leash time and space is, is an enhancement for dogs because they get to move around at will, at their own pace, explore what they want to explore, what they find salient or interesting, um, interact with those other dogs or people that they want to interact with and avoid those that they don't. So... Um, those are just some examples, and I know we're going to get into some other examples right. well, as we go along. What's, what, you, you don't pull any punches on, in this book, and one thing you say is humans, humans need to give up stuff to allow dogs to be themselves. So it's, yes. not, it's not an easy, it's, it's not a give a dog a treat because you sat down, now, now you think your dog is happy. Um, exactly. it's, it's lifestyle change. It's something you mentioned several times in this book, and I think it's so, so important. Um, that's one of the premises you have in this book is you you got to understand your dog, and that means you may have to do stuff that you don't want to do. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that you could you could say, you know, if there are certain things that get kind of – it shocks me in some ways that people get dogs who are – who don't ever want to hear a dog bark. And they say – my dog barks, this is really a problem for me. Like, if you if you really, really don't ever want to hear a dog bark, then for God's sake, don't get a dog. Why would you do that? Um, you know, if you're really bothered by dog hair on your couch or on your floor and you don't want to clean every day, don't get a dog. And there's this, it, it seems to me there's, um, like, everybody feels like they need to have a dog or want to have a dog just to be a, a normal part of society because so many households now have dogs, and a lot of them really probably shouldn't just because people don't want to adapt their lifestyle um, in such a way that they can give a dog what they need. Um, you know, one of the, the hard questions that comes up for people is, you know, people, you know, most people have to work and a lot of people have to work outside the home and need to be away from the home for, for many hours a day. And, and some of these people love dogs, want to have a dog, but, you know, it's, it's very hard to have a dog and also have a full-time job. It can be done, but, you know, you, it's one of those situations where it, Sometimes the best dog owners are people who don't have dogs, you know, who make choices. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it it does, you know, it really places a lot of constraints on on your life to have a dog. And, you know, we have um, a dog now, just one. We're we're down to one after having two or three for many years. Um, And, you know, there are often times we'll say, oh, we want to go away for the weekend. Um, but we can't. We can't bring our dog for one reason or another, and 
not, we have a dog who's not easy to leave um, with other people. She's uh, got some abandonment issues from her past and is, it's very hard on her if we leave her with somebody like a, if we took her to a kennel. The other dogs who love kennels, so it's, you know, it's hard to, to predict ahead of time who you're going to have when you bring a dog into your home. Um, but often it requires a lot of sacrifice on our part. And, you know, if you're tired at the end of the day and you really don't feel like taking your dog out for a walk, well, too bad. Yeah, yeah, you got to you <laughs> you know, take you gotta, it. Yeah. You have a responsibility to do that if you have a dog. Um, if you have a dog, not all dogs want to go for a walk, but if you have a dog who wants to and needs to, then, you know, you got to do it whether you want to or not. So we, peop- so we see people trying to fit the dog into their lives rather than, bring a dog into their lives and accommodate. Yeah, and it's, it's all a it matter of all the compromise. Time. Yeah. And our dogs can't demand from us the way, you know, a spouse or a child, you know, you can you can communicate and verbally and kind of come to agreements about what you each need and how to accommodate those needs and for, you know, dogs have ways of of telling us what they need and want, but we often don't listen. <laughs> Um, and often I, what happens and it's very unfortunate is we, we don't listen to our dogs. I'm putting that in scare quotes. Um, and our dog becomes frustrated and anxious and then acts out in, in ways that then we find annoying and problematic and the dog winds up at either the veterinary behaviorist in the, the good scenario or at the shelter in the bad scenario. Um, so we just need to listen more, and listen part, more carefully. Part of that listening you mentioned at the beginning of the book, uh, this is an ethology term called an ethogram. It's, mm-hmm. it's a way, it's, a, it's something I don't think many people thought about. It's not, um, it's kind of obvious when you, when you bring it up, but uh, using the ethogram to understand your own dog. And can you explain exactly what that is? Sure. So an an ethogram is something that ethologists or people who study animal behavior in the field use to um, to identify and understand an animal's behavior. And it's basically a list of observed behaviors. So it might, for a dog owner, involve something like just sitting. For example, if you take your dog to a dog park, sitting and observing your dog's behavior, what... um, what is their body language? What is their, what does, what's the position of their tail? You know, is it straight? Is it up and stiff? Is it loose and relaxed? You know, what are the ears doing? Are the ears pricked forward? Are they laid back? And, and just observing and writing down a list of, of what you observe. And then, you know, gradually trying to understand what it means. Um, and, and you begin to see patterns. and. You know, it's, a, it's complicated um, to study the behavior of an individual dog, um, but it, it's rewarding, and um, I, I think the main thing that it does for dog owners is just asks them to sit and observe and watch what their dog is doing, sort of on their dog's own terms, not trying to put human meaning onto it, um, which is something 
very easy to do. Um, and just trying to understand who their dog is as a dog. And if you do that long enough, you'll start to understand even what the dog is feeling based exactly. on what is exactly. what the behavior is. And I think um, like a, a good example is to do, you can be very specific about it, do an ethogram of growling. Um, because each growl is going to have a different communicative meaning for the dog. And not all growling is mean or aggressive or, um, you know, sort of fear or aggression-related behavior. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand about dogs. They think all growling is a kind of a warning sign. But a lot of dogs growl when they're playing. So there are play growls, and then there are resource-guarding growls. Um, our dog, Bella, growls instead of whines when she wants to go outside. So understanding the sort of canine behavior and then also understanding the individual dog because there's so much variation and that's one of the things that we really come back to over and over in the book and probably it feels like you're being hit over the head with a sledgehammer on this point but there is no such thing as the dog with a capital D. Every dog is different. Every dog is a unique individual um, and we really need to get to know um, each unique dog. And that message is important uh, because what, from reading your book is that the giving your dog freedoms may be a little different with your dog than with another dog with exactly. the same kind, same kind of freedom. Exactly. And, you know, to take my dog Bella as an example again, you know, she doesn't like the dog park unless there are no dogs there in which case she does like it because there are a lot of interesting smells. But when there are dogs there, it's overstimulating for her and, and kind of freedom inhibiting. So, you know, you, if, you, if you didn't live with dogs or no dogs, you might think, well, every dog would love to go to the dog park. Right, right. But that's a really kind of individual thing. And every dog park is different, too. I mean, we have maybe five or six dog parks within easy driving distance, and each one has its own personality and kind of, um, you know, collection of dogs who go, and the people are <laughs> a kind of unique collection of people. And, you know, Bella likes one dog park much better than the other five dog parks, um, which I wouldn't even consider taking her to. Um, and then the one that she does like, if they're is nobody there or one or two dogs there, then, then that's fun for her. And the fact that you understand your dog, you'll know that she doesn't like it or does like it by her behavior. Yeah. And sometimes and it's, it's obvious, sometimes it's subtle, right? Exactly. And it's, yeah. it's sometimes it's, um, it's definitely there's a, a lot of learning that goes on when you, um, when you bring a dog into your home and, and dogs change over time too. Just it's like having a child, you know. Just when you think you have them figured out, <laughs> they're in a different stage of development, um, and you got to start all over and try to figure them out again. Um, so you know, same with dogs. It's, and and they're doing the same with us. They're trying very hard to figure us out as well. And we probably change over time too. So their work is never done. 
Absolutely. We're talking with Jessica Pierce, author of Unleashing Your Dog. This is W-E-R-U. And uh, this is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. Hunt, your host. Now we can uh, shift into uh, the meat of your book. Uh, you use the different senses of the dog and understanding the different senses and how you can enhance their freedoms. And they can become happier based on senses. That's yeah. kind, of, that's kind of how I took the book. Uh, the first one was smell. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Uh, one thing that I really liked is when you you allow. Well, the lesson that you give is let let them sniff. Yes. And uh, why don't you elaborate on that? Because I have sure. a comment about, about that. So the the first thing and perhaps most important thing to understand about dogs, in my opinion, is that they are olfactory animals. That is to say, they experience the world through their sense of smell. And that's really different from us. Humans are visual animals. So we really we experience the world primarily through our visual sense. Um, for dogs, it's really different. They're, it's not to say that they have poor eyesight, but their visual acuity is, is not the same as ours. It's not as good as ours. And they really rely on their sense of smell um, to kind of interpret their world and interact with their world. And, you know, one um, little factoid that I think is, is interesting is that the portion of the dog brain that's dedicated to processing olfactory or smell information is much larger than um, the olfactory center of the human brain. And so where, where humans have about 6 million smell receptors, dogs have somewhere on the order of 300 million. So their sense of smell is about a thousand times more sensitive to our, than ours, which is, it's hard to even wrap your brain around what that means. Um, but they're their world is just kind of this, <laughs> if you can even imagine, um, you know, translating our visual world into, um, into smell. And so one of the most important freedom enhancers that we can provide for our dogs is to let them experience the world through their nose by letting them sniff. Um, one study of off-leash dogs that did a, a time budget, so sort of like an ethogram, um, found that they'll spend about a third of their time sniffing. So if you're going to take your dog for a 30-minute walk, maybe 10 minutes of that is just standing there letting your dog sniff. And um, one of the most important things that dogs like to sniff is the pee of other dogs. And, you know, this is another one of those, you know, cultural differences. Humans don't find the urine of fellow humans um, very interesting and, in fact, find it kind of disgusting. Um, for dogs, it's complete opposite. There's a lot of really salient information to be found in um, a urine spot left by another dog. For example, you know, how that dog was feeling. So, 
some sense of the emotional state of the other dog is actually um, to be found in this urine spot, which I think is fascinating. Um, you know, and the gender of the other dog, the um, perhaps the age, I mean, we don't even really understand um, all of the information dogs are getting from urine. And that's one of the things that was the, the, one of the most interesting things about writing this book was to see how much we don't understand about dogs. Um, you know, there's a lot of canine science. It's really interesting. And there are a lot of unanswered questions. So, and a lot of um, so let them sniff. One of the uh, dogs can take advantage of this sniffing. <laughs> example, my border collie, Ben, he's passed on, but he used to run with me. And I think when he, he would fall behind, and I'd look back and he'd be sniffing. And I thought, well, that's good, he's sniffing. But you know what? I think he was resting. <laughs> I think he was just pretending he was sniffing. So he'd give himself a little bit of a rest, and then he would come. Enjoying That's himself. funny. <laughs> so I think uh, dogs are smarter than we think. Oh, I think you're right. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree. The other thing is that they, that you mentioned is, and people I think who own dogs can see this. They're always sniffing. So even always. When, even when they're standing there, look at yeah. their nose and they're twitching and they orient towards the, uh, you know, the wind. They're always always smelling, and that's that's really fascinating. Even when they sleep, apparently. Oh, they're really? They're um, sniffing while they're sleeping. Yeah, apparently. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that, that we talk about, a potential freedom inhibitor, and we, we really don't know, but, um, you know, there are often people will shampoo their dogs with very um, strong-smelling kind of perfumed shampoo that we might use on ourselves, you know, tea tree oil or lavender. And, you know, how much does that smell from the shampoo inhibit their ability to, um, you know, take in olfactory information from the environment that might be interesting to them. Um, and, you know, when we use deodorizers in our home that are really strongly scented, how much does that, how, how bothersome is that to our dog? We really don't know, but I, I think potentially bothersome. It also is distract, it um, covers up warning signs that they can detect that we can't if they're right. guarding the guarding their family they may exactly. s they may smell something that's adversive or, or dangerous that we don't we don't smell so it's called yeah. you call uh, odor overload i think is the term you use um, yeah exactly but then you get the opposite overload when you get a dog running off like our two labradors did uh found a pile of chicken manure Oh, no. Down in Lubeck, and they they sniffed it. It was like 200 yards away, and they they beelined right for it and rolled oh, yeah. and rolled in it. And they had to, yeah. they wanted to keep doing it. So I know. Uh, so what's what's with that? <laughs> well, this is another one of those behaviors that nobody knows for sure. You know, it could be just as you suggest. It just smells good to them. You know, um, Bella loves to roll in dead fish which is just mm. very it's disgusting and it's really hard to <laughs> really hard to wash off too um, but dead fish dead animal goose poop you name it um, it could be um, you know a, a behavior that is related to their ancestry 
as wolves, you know, where, you know, animals may roll in things to disguise their own scent when they're hunting. Yes, that's um, what so I that understood. They can't, yeah. Um, so, but it is definitely something that dogs are motivated to do and um, some more than others. And, you know, we say in the book, every now and then, just let them do it. It's gross. Um, and you're going to have to give them a bath, but they really enjoy it. It's part of the um, And sometimes you just can't avoid it because, as you say, <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. smell these things and we don't. And so they may be gone and rolling before we even <laughs> lift our head up. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> if you have any questions for Jessica, please call us at 469-0500, that any comments or questions you want to ask her about her book, Unleashing Your Dog. And we're talking about smell, which is very important for a dog. Uh, other smells that they like are the sniffing of people's uh, crotches. is uh, mm-hmm. something that says, says hello, right? Exactly. And maybe, you know, that's normal for them. You don't want to punish them for that. Exactly. So and if, if it's really, you know, it's one of those things you might want to, Train your dog not to do it to strangers because it's uncomfortable and awkward for the for you and for the other human. But it's not, a, you know, in, in dog culture, it's not inappropriate. It's totally normal, and there's a lot of interesting information down there. <laughs> which which brings me to the point that you've made several times, especially with, with leash walking versus running free, <clears throat> is we want to give our dogs freedoms, but some of these freedoms need to be or have to be restricted because of our social climate of yeah. neighbors and friends and, and safety, running yeah. free, yeah. Uh, getting hit by a car, that sort of thing. Yes. So that's and I think it's just, you know, it's not a very satisfying answer, but we just have to use good sense, you know, good parenting sense. Um, just as we would with our children, we, we let them take risks, but the risks that we have evaluated, <laughs> um, you know, and, and taken to be, you know, probably everything's going to be okay. And there are things like letting your dog run off leash without good recall near a busy road that are just dumb that unfortunately you still see people do, um, but using good sense, let them run free in a, in a fenced area or in an area where there really is no danger of, of cars. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, this is getting off track a little bit, but one of the points that we really tried to emphasize in the book is that one of the most important freedom enhancers, and it may sound counterintuitive, but um, one of the most important enhancers is good training because a dog who has rock solid recall is going to get more freedom, more off leash time, and will be safer um, than a dog who doesn't have recall. Uh, And training is a way, or teaching is another um, word that we use in the book, it's a way to help our dogs be successful in human environments. So it's one of the the greatest favors we can do our companions is to teach them how to be good canine citizens in human in the human world 
And also, is there an element um, of, of the dog being domesticated with us is that they want to please? Yes. And and part of pleasing is 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 obeying. Yeah. Not, not a not a command. You mentioned that it's you don't want to force a dog into commands. You want them to. How did you say it? Um, trying to look at my notes here. When you when a dog when you're trying to train a dog, um, you don't force them to. You don't force them to to um, have the command, but you kind of allow them to. I'm, I'm not getting that right. Well, again, yeah, I'm it? not. I don't remember exactly what language we use, but it's we see training more as a, you know, it's a two-way communication, um, learning to speak clearly to our dogs and learning to help them listen to us effectively. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I just lost my train of thought, too. Okay. Well, getting back to uh, some of the senses, uh, we have briefly, we have taste. We talked about smell the taste. One of the lessons that you mentioned is, um, you know, use good judgment, uh, but allow your dog to eat stuff if it's not going to be harmful to them, but allow, allow them to taste. Yeah. That's and this, this is one of those freedom enhancers where it does depend on the individual dog. There are dogs who whose tummies don't do well when they're, given a lot of um, choice in foods that they eat. But for a lot of dogs, I mean, dogs evolve uh, as scavengers and eating human garbage and leftovers. So I, mean, I think the, the admonition that you often hear that dogs should never eat people food and should only be given the exact same kibble every single day is just silly because... Dogs evolved eating our leftovers, and they like it. Um, there's a reason dogs hang around the kitchen when we're cooking and eating, because their food probably smells um, a lot less interesting than ours. And, you know, I've seen people, and I just don't really understand this, I've seen people, you know, eat a steak dinner and throw half a steak into the garbage and then open a can of, you know, hunk of beef canned stew, and <laughs> that's yeah, just so wasteful yeah. and silly. And I can tell you the dog would much rather have had the steak than the can of beef stew, and that probably would have been healthier for them. And of course, we have just add um, good judgment on that as well. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we and there's, there's a long list of, of things that are not good for dogs and actually can be quite dangerous for dogs and some of them are sort of surprising like avocados and grapes and macadamia nuts and stevia so i think really being educated about um those things that are harmful and and those things that don't agree with your dog's digestive system right that's so education you, you gotta exactly. know education we, and listening to your dog we do have a caller michelle from elliot good morning Good morning, husband. Um, so, I, fascinating, absolutely fascinating show. Um, I had a question about how appropriate is it that 
the entire society seems to be going toward bringing your dog anywhere and everywhere, no matter what the danger seems to be, such as going into a food store or taking your dog to a farmer's market when it's 95 degrees out. Um, can you just speak about that a little bit? Yeah, I I totally agree with you, and that's a, a really, um, it's a great point. Um, there is this and it's it's mixed up in complicated ways with the whole you know therapy dog and emotional support dog issue, um, but there is this trend toward thinking among dog owners that dogs should be allowed everywhere and are appropriate everywhere. And I don't think it's good for anybody. And m- most of all, first of all, the dogs. Um, I was at a an outdoor concert last summer, the summer before I mentioned this in the book, um, it was a really, really loud outdoor concert. Um, It actually hurt my ears. And there was a dog there. These people had brought their dog, and it was this poor animal was shivering and had her ears pulled back and tails between her legs, and the people didn't really seem to notice that this was a, a really aversive experience for the dog. And you know, a lot of dogs that I see at farmers markets, and my dog would be this way, definitely. Um, it's it's too much stimulation for them, and they get scared, and and they often are not safe. You know, they're not. It's not safe for them, and it's not safe for other people too. Um, and you know, there are a lot of places dogs can go and should go, but not everywhere. Because you. You mentioned the you know four hours is about the maximum amount of time. It's kind of arbitrary. I mean, you, you you got this from some uh, research, but four hours is about as long as you want to leave a dog alone. And people feel that um, they they can't leave their dog alone, so they bring them to these potentially dangerous places. So again, it's you're saying y- you got to give up a little bit of your life to give a freedom enhancer to your dog, but it doesn't have to be on your your terms, like going to the grocery store. Exactly, yeah. Um, and there is a tension there um, because it's, you know, if four hours, and, and this is just a, a rough consensus from veterinarians and behaviorists that, you know, four hours is comfortable for, for most dogs. Beyond that, it can get uncomfortable to be left alone. Um, because dogs have evolved and been domesticated um, to be hypersocial um, and hyper-attached to their human person. So we create this and kind of feed off this sense of dependence, yet um, then don't want to hold up our side of the bargain, which is to be there um, for, for our dog if we're, we're their most important social connection. Um, and it's hard when, when your choices are, you know, you want to go to the farmer's market or go to a concert and your dog's been at home. Um, and you may have to compromise and go for a hike instead or go somewhere quiet, go for a picnic in <laughs> a deserted park with your dog. Right. Or, you know, it depends. it depends on the dog. Some dogs are extremely extroverted and love to be around a lot of human and other dogs' social stimulation. Um, but I think also being good neighbors to people who don't 
have dogs or don't even like dogs. And, you know, I think sometimes dog owners feel like everybody should love dogs and want to be around them. And there's something wrong with people who don't like dogs. And that's just, that's not, I don't think that's helpful for anybody. No, it doesn't help anybody. So another, we need probably another two hours to talk here, but um, (laughs) we got about 10 minutes. I'm going to skip around a little bit these lessons. One lesson is uh, find a place where a dog can run free safely. And and most importantly, on their terms. So you can explain what you mean by that. Sure. So, I mean, the, the safely part, just, you know, using good sense about cars, other people, cyclists, um, you know, around Boulder, we have we have a lot of parks, and a lot of them are actually off-leash parks, and they're, they're places where there are a lot of different users, um, and, and <laughs> it's kind of scary sometimes, cyclists sort of racing through um, areas where dogs are running back and forth, and, you know, I've actually seen more than one um, accident <laughs> from wow. a dog running in front of a cyclist. And that's, that's not safe for anybody. Um, so using good sense about that and also, um, you know, ha- making sure that your dog, again, has good recall. You know, where I live, there are a lot of rattlesnakes. So letting a dog run free um, involves a little bit of risk and also um, requires that dog owners be really vigilant about, you know, where they're letting their dog run. You know, there are fields where there are a lot of snakes, so maybe that's not a good place to go in the summer. Um, And um, having that rock-solid recall so that if there's something a dog is chasing or, um, you know, some kind of stimuli, you can get your your dog back safely. And um, so just, again, using good parental wisdom and mindfulness about, about what you're doing. Oh, yes, so letting letting your dog out the back door to go run free is is potentially dangerous and not necessarily what you're saying when you're saying unleashing your dog. You're saying exactly. that they, they need to run free, but in, a, in an area that's safe for everybody. Yeah, and and the, the dog enjoys. I mean, uh, again, going back to the, the dog park example, it's a great place for dogs to be able to be unleashed, but for some dogs, it's not a safe environment. Um, you know, they may not be friendly with other dogs or they may, you know, a lot of dogs, we talk about humans having, you know, varying levels of social intelligence or social sophistication. And, you know, everybody's been at, at a party where they've wound up talking to somebody who doesn't seem to have a lot of kind of social yeah. <laughs> good sense. And, you know, they're just, talking about themselves for two hours straight or whatever. And, you know, with dogs, there's a lot of variation in social intelligence. And, um, you know, if you if you come upon a dog who doesn't read social signals very well in your dog and is pushy um, and, you know, maybe, you know, your dog is giving signals of not being comfortable, but the other dog is is ignoring these signals or is not, not getting it, um, it can be a dangerous situation. Which leads no. to another one of your lessons is better communication. Yes. Uh, uh, you align verbal and nonverbal cues 
to get yeah. consistent, um, clear message. I've seen this is a very common mistake. You so, yeah, and there's been some really interesting research on um, verbal and gestural communication and how dogs read um, human verbal signals and human gestural signals, for example, a, a pointing gesture. And um, so in one study, they trained dogs to respond to verbal commands um, to identify an object like a ball and a Frisbee and something else. And they also train them to respond to a gestural cue. So a pointing gesture, you know, go get the ball that I'm pointing at, go get the Frisbee that I'm pointing at. And they, you know, when the, when the human researcher gave a verbal and gestural cue that matched, the dogs were really quick to respond. When they gave a verbal and gestural command that conflicted, so you point to the Frisbee but say, get the ball, the dogs were, they were confused by it and troubled by it. But what's interesting to me is that they tended to follow the gesture more strongly than the verbal cue. Hmm. So, and one thing that I've noticed about my own training with Bella is that I'm a messy communicator. I've, I learned this from some dog um, trainers who've helped me with Bella, that I'm giving a verbal signal, but I'm maybe moving my body around, like moving my hands <laughs> in ways that I'm not even aware of. So I'm confusing her because I'm, I'm giving a messy signal. Um, That's interesting. So being really clear about, and, and one method of training that's really effective and based on this research or confirmed by this research, if you have gestural cues and verbal cues for you know, a given behavior like sit, um, it's good to have both because sometimes you're in a, a noisy place and your dog can't necessarily hear you giving a verbal cue but can see a gestural cue. And when you use both at once, you've got a double whammy. And then add to that the emotional content yes. of the word. Yeah. So saying come when the dog is running in the middle of the road is different than saying come in the kitchen to get a snack because your emotion is going to be different. Yes. And dogs are really good at reading <coughs> human emotion and the emotional content of our speech. And there was another interesting study. I know we're running out of time. Um, but I'd mention it really quickly. Um, they um, did some work where they looked at, um, they had researchers giving um, a, a command in a neutral, or saying a word in a neutral voice, um, and saying a neutral word in an <coughs> excited voice. And it was the, tone of voice that the dogs responded to more than the actual content or, or word. Um, and I think that's, that's important, too. That, does that come into the baby talking? Do you think? <laughs> yes. The emotion, the, oh. the emotion of the word rather than, you know, what does that mean? But the dog understands the emotion part. They do, they, and they respond to that. Um, I wonder sometimes if they also kind of roll their eyes and say, <laughs> Grow up, would you? <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of dogs do that. Uh, we just have a couple more minutes. Uh, is there anything else you want to add? Uh, other, there's 
so much more to talk about, but if people buy your book, they will be very uh, pleased with uh, the information in it. Is there anything else that you can, or any? You know, one quick point that I can make in the last couple minutes is just uh, the issue of consent. Um, and this comes into play with, for example, hugging a dog or petting a dog. Um, I think there's this feeling that, that dogs should love any attention that we give them um, and any attention that any human gives them. But we always need to ask a dog for consent when we want to um, touch them, um, if we want to pet them, and especially if we want to hug them. And I think that's important because dog bites are a serious safety issue, um, particularly with children. And, you know, children are not always good at reading the signals that dogs are giving. Um, and dogs are usually pretty clear about whether or not they want to be touched um, and often are, are giving signals that they're nervous um, when they're being hugged or petted, and not all dogs like it. And so just um, being really cautious and asking a dog before we touch them if it's okay. But the problem with that is some dogs won't like being pet, but yet the owners think they do. So the owner says, okay, yeah, you can pet my dog. And the owner doesn't realize that the dog doesn't want to be pet. And that, yeah. that's, a, that's a serious problem because if the owner says it's okay, then the child or the, the parent thinks it's, it's safe. And it's something that you really need to look at the dogs tense, getting tense, yeah, ears exactly. down, looking away, avoid. You got the children really, and the parents really need to know that just, be, just because an owner says it's okay doesn't mean the dog says it's okay. Yeah. And, and I, I love when I see um, children whose parents have taught them always to come to ask before they pet a dog. And, um, you know, children will, will often. Bella, my dog, is she's really cute. Um, so everybody wants to pet her, but she, she's scared of people. So it's actually kind of dangerous if people try to pet her um, without yeah. her permission. And I love it when children... Oh, we gotta, we gotta leave. I'm sorry, Jessica. Oh. Jessica Pierce, uh, author of Unleashing Your Dogs. Thank you so much for this hour. We could probably spend a lot more time, but thanks again. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks Zebras, Dr. Hunt. Until next time, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug. Support for WERU comes from Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information. Publishing three weekly newspapers, the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, and the Castine Patriot, as well as the Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at penobscotbaypress.com. For islands on the coast of Maine, schools are the lifeblood of the community. But declining enrollment can pose a threat to the school's vitality. To stem the tide, the K-12 North Haven Community School recently started welcoming students from the mainland to attend their program as tuition-based magnet students. This is Natalie Springle from the University of Maine Sea Grant, host of